Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. Do you want to have a good cup of coffee? Do you want to read a good book while you're having that good cup of coffee? Well, gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen that we have with us can do all of that and so much more. Patrick Greenwood is with us. He's the author of the book, sunrise in uh saigon and the book's doing very very well he also is uh working with a company coffee company out of uh vietnam and he sent me some and it was delicious i have to say it, it was really good so patrick thank you for coming back on the show how are you today thank you kevin thanks for having me it's great to see you again glad you like the coffee I, I did indeed, and I haven't read the book quite yet, but I'm going to be, and uh, and I'm real pleased that, that things are going well for you. The book is being very well received. The, the reviews are terrific, and uh, you've got a sequel coming as well as an audio book. Let's that talk about correct, those. Yeah. So the audio book is actually coming out on Audible. I'm expecting it probably the later part of March, uh, early May. I'm going to let that kind of come out for – maybe March, April, May, maybe June. Uh, I originally was going to release Codename Dragon Vault, which is the sequel to Sunrise and Saigon in July. Uh, I may consider moving that out probably to March, September, October timeframe because I do want the auto book to get out and have people experience it. Um, I have a wonderful publisher and writer based in uh, Oklahoma, Amy Lee, who is actually the uh, publisher and CEO of Quahog Publishing. Uh, she is actually a Vietnam a survivor. She was a refugee. She actually escaped Vietnam when she was a little girl. She's actually the one doing the audio for the book. So I, I'm very excited to uh, to hear it when she's done. But, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to have that that coming out as well. I got to tell you, it, it, you are doing some really good things uh, with, the, with the latest thing. But this is the first novel that you've written, isn't it? Yes, it is. What did you do in your prior life before you decided to do this and make no money? Well, actually, I do make money because I, I actually write for a living. And I, my father asked me that exact same question when I retired from cybersecurity after 28 years. He goes, what are you doing? You're writing? Does it pay? <laughs> yes, Dad, it does pay. You can make money writing. Yes, you can. Um, so I actually write uh, professionally. I do write blogs and, and white papers and ebooks for customers about cybersecurity and blockchain. And, and that's kind of that's kind of my livelihood. Uh, the writing of the books and novels is fun. Um, you know, selling coffee, as you know, is, is helping to promote helmets for kids in Vietnam. Uh, and the proceeds of the book also goes to the, you know, to the charity as well. But, but uh, I love writing, but I did spend a, a, a great more of my adult life in, in cybersecurity and technology. Well, and, and uh, tell us about the coffee and how it's helping the kids in Vietnam. I just love this story. So actually, uh, so uh, the, the coffee company is called psychorider 3 expressocom uh, I actually released the coffee uh, last June uh, in, uh, I, I sell it online through the website, uh, psychorider 3 expressocom And all proceeds of the coffee and also the uh, commemorative mugs uh, all go to help the helmet for kids in Vietnam. So it helps support the charities as well. And of course, all the proceeds of the book of Sunrise in Saigon. Uh, also goes to help uh, the helmets for kids. Now, I had the pleasure of obviously getting a helmet delivered to me from Vietnam after they made one. So not only do they put my logo on it, but currently uh, I provided enough funding for almost 2,000 helmets this year uh, to, to help uh, support the kids as well. Oh, that is just outstanding. Now, now tell us about, if you haven't been to Vietnam, 
Tell us about why it's important for kids to have a helmet on their bike in Vietnam. Well, I got to tell you, you know, in America, we see a lot of kids running around with e-bikes and they're weaving in and out of traffic with cars. But, you know, the thing is, our roads are built for cars and bikes and trucks and buses, things like that. In Vietnam, they're built for pull carts. They're built for scooters. They're not built for cars. So now in the last, you know, seven, eight years, you now have cars on the road, trucks on the road, and the roads are not widened. It's still the same, you know. So imagine a six-year-old child trying to get to school and weaving in and out of the same traffic 8 million scooters are weaving out of. So Helmets for Kids actually started in 2000 by President Bill Clinton when he made his trip to Vietnam for the first time. And uh, he got involved because he saw the importance of, you know, what are we doing to really kind of, you know, keep these kids safe? Because they were obviously having lots of fatalities and challenges. So he was actually the, one of the first original people to help put the program together. And obviously, and one of the most important news was in 2019, Global Globe winter and potential Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh became the global ambassador of Helmet for Kids. So obviously I'm cheering for her on the Academy Awards this year, but she became the global ambassador as well. And obviously that does show that there's a lot of people in the world that do care of what's going on. Obviously, I, I love getting involved and love contributing as well to, to help buy more helmets for the kids. You know, you just mentioned that Bill Clinton went there in what, 2000? 2000, yes. Yeah, and I, I want to remind kids, our, some of our audience is a little bit younger. <laughs> I vividly remember 1975 when we, uh, when the helicopters left the um, um, Saigon and the, in the ambassadorship in Saigon and, and took off and, and we effectively lost that war and withdrew. And it, uh, but there's, there are people that don't really know what the, what, Vietnam was like and what you know and is there still a north and a south Vietnam are they consolidated and and then they're next to Laos which is had lots and lots of troubles and mm -hmm. uh, and stuff so now tell us a little bit more about that part of the world well so obviously you're you're correct after April 30th of 1975 you know the images of most Americans that were watching the television news back then watched the helicopters taking off with lots of people storming the gate at the embassy trying to get, get a ride out. And Marines were there, you know, trying to defend the gate and trying to tell people no, you know, and they were trying to hold people back, but people were very desperate because they didn't know what was going to happen with the North Vietnamese coming south and you know, the South, pretty much the South Vietnam government collapsed. Um, and then after April 30th, that when we look at April 30th, we think of it, that's where we lost the war. They look at it as their day of unification. So, bad, good, anything in between, it became one Vietnam after that. And I think on the last show, you and I got to talk about, well, what made this war any different than Afghanistan and Iraq and Kuwait and all the other problems of the world? They said there was a closure. But right, wrong, or indifferent, painfully, however it may play out, the reality was is that when that day happened, there was closure. There was a way of moving forward. Now, how they, how they moved forward and some of the trials and tribulations they faced was you know, obviously a lot of atrocities as well. But when they got into the more the 1980s, Vietnam started identifying itself as a country. And now it didn't exactly open its borders and didn't exactly turn on you know, the, the, the trade switch, but it made some steps towards it. I mean, people started getting educated and they started looking themselves as one country because they did allow time to sort of get over the end of the war. And now if you go there today, it's an incredible country. It's high tech, it's got education, it has some of the brightest minds. And many of the, the, the people that have left there came here to get educated. Many of them have gone back. 
to try to contribute back to the country as well. So I think it has been an example of how a country can turn itself around. So, you know, perspective is interesting in a case like this, because from our perspective, we lost the war and it was, you know, it was a really bad day. From their perspective, it was Independence Day. Yes. That, yes, very that's, much. That, that's really cool. And even though they had a lot of atrocities and so many people died in that in that war um, mm-hmm. from both us and from France. And I think yes. what, wasn't China or 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 Russia there before China was there. Well, France was there, of course, in the 50s. China contributed. Russia contributed. Cuba contributed. Obviously, we contributed. The South Koreans contributed as well. There was a lot of countries involved. A lot of people don't realize it. It wasn't just, you know, U.S. GIs and South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese. There was a lot of other countries that had a vested interest in that country because of its resources. And that's like, you know, I had a chance to be on another podcast a couple months ago. And one of the comments that someone asked me or questions asked me was, what made Vietnam so well? I said, rubber. Michelin. <laughs> I mean, oil. I mean, you just you got you go back to the 30s, and and the fact that you know Japan needed to invade to go after the oil. So it is a very rich country from a resource perspective, and everyone has tried to conquer it, and everyone has pretty much failed miserably about it. Well, and they also um, were as many parts of the world are. Um, they are a tribal society. They've yeah. got several tribes in, in there then, that have had to. And talk a little bit about that, because there are some parts of the world, uh, Afghanistan comes to mind, yes. where the tribes are not cohesive. You've got yeah. the, the, different, the different groups and stuff. How did Vietnam come together under one heading of, of a country when there were so many tribes that, that were out and about? Well, they actually, one of the things that's interesting today when you travel from north to south, everyone within the country, for the most part, believes it's it's their country. They feel like they're part of something. A lot of the remote tribes you're talking about, especially the ones in the central highlands and kind of the upper mountain areas, you know, that they were so behind the times and civilization that they welcomed innovation. They welcomed roads. They welcomed schools. They knew it came at a price, though, because now they're part of a communist, you know, kind of structure. But they have opened up several years ago the idea of privatization, you know, of, of homes, privatization of people attending schools. The healthcare system is very, very good. You can go from a doctor to a regional hospital to a provisional hospital and get treatment. So they're, they really have done some things that are very interesting. Now, they do have their issues with you know, human rights, of course, like most countries do. But they, for the most part, have really made an effort to try to be part of the rural community. So some of these outlining areas that used to be remote, like Saba, as an example, which is a beautiful part of the country in the north, they have tourism now. People want to see the caverns. They want to see, you know, the way the old houses used to be built. And, of course, you know, when you get further north and you get into everything from, you know, the, the harbors to the, you know, to the trails, to the food, it's just it's just become a, a wide open society and and when you see a Starbucks or you see a little Marriott sign somewhere, you're like, okay, the West has landed again. But it but it, for the most part, they really have brought together the country. Now it's taken a lot of years, I think, to get that unification that we're looking for. Now there are two questions that I have. First of first of all, um, I'll go into my. Uh, um, it's probably not a bad thing or a good thing to do because it's kind of is my 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 dialect of of so you go to a communist country you can 
they're communists. They're commies over there. What are you doing over there? And no. uh, um, so my, I guess my question is, they are they are quote unquote a communist country, but they've got yes. Starbucks and they've embraced a little bit of the West as far as uh, their economic status and what they're trying to get get done. Is private ownership allowed there and that kind of thing? Yeah, there are people. Well, they've had some success in private ownership where people have had acquired property. They've had failure where they've gone in and overbuilt on a lot of areas. Like a lot, there's, a lot, there's even a large sections of ghost towns that were sort of built, didn't get finished. And, and you see that, by the way, all over China as well. I mean, you can be on the train in China for four hours and you can see, you know, hundreds of apartments and houses never finished. Vietnam does have a little bit of that. What's really different, though, is the, the system of communistic government does exist, but you, you, you don't know that by being there. When you're there traveling around and meeting people and, and sitting down and having espressos with people or, or having a, a bowl of fire or something, everyone's the same. Everybody just views it. And you don't, even, the, even the, the soldiers that man the corners that wave traffic through will stop and say hello to you. So, it, no, it, it's, it's a much more opener place than what people realize. Do you think that over time, because of the westernization or the the upswinging capitalism, that it will uh, drive them into a different place than they ever were before? I don't think so, because the whole point of Vietnam culture is that people have came and people have gone and we're still here. And it goes back 100 years where people have tried to conquer it, they try to colonize it. Uh, and everyone has said the reason ultimately why foreign powers have failed is because everybody gets on the same page for a period of time and say, okay, now it's this people coming in. We're going to all rally and make it all, you know, make it all go away in a matter of time. So their ability to mobilize themselves behind one banner is still very important today to them. Now that's because there is a, you know, obviously a communistic, you know, rule set to it, but the way that they educate their, their kids, the way they put them through the pioneering programs and, I don't want to call it indoctrination, but it, it, they they basically sell the, the you know they sell the story very early to kids. So when they're growing up, even when the, they come here to come to America to go to the country, they still speak very highly of their homeland uh, as well. Do they find <laughs> do they find that our form of capitalism is a little chaotic, and that there's a lot more uh, uniformity over there, and and they know what to expect? Where over here, you really don't. They're a little bit more harsher. Um, let, let's do a cross compare for a moment. If you compare, let's say, an example, South Korea in their conglomerates and the United States and our corporations and Vietnam, you're going to find that the tolerance for briberies and corruption is far taken more harshly there than in other countries. Other countries, it's more like it's just foregone conclusion. That's how you do business. In Vietnam, if you're going to try to take the, the stuff on the sidelines and take a little money down on the low, you're not going to be there very much longer because it really does break up the entire process of what they're trying to do. And even some of their most established corporations, if you get caught doing something of that nature, you're not wearing a Brooks Brothers suit anymore. You're wearing a striped jammies, right? And and they have no problem doing that to even a CEO, right? There's no, there's no political form of saying, well, I'm connected. Good luck. You're done. Other countries, it's more like oh, you can buy your way out of trouble. Uh, not there. They're very much into, you know, and it, it's harsh, but, you know, at the same time, they're trying to build something. They're trying to be, you know, a, a global player and, and they want to do that without, you know, so much riffraff. Well, and I will tell you, um, um, I, I, I don't know what their gun laws are like there. Does everybody <laughs> carry guns or, 
Or does nobody carry guns? Nobody dares. Yeah, they'll carry a stick, <laughs> but they won't carry a gun. No, they no, no, they don't. It's not a gun culture at all. No, no, no quite, quite. The, you know, because remember, they look at themselves as think of themselves as a concave. It's like you have the country, which is just one big giant circle. Everybody's in the same circle, right? And so, why would they need to carry weapons against themselves? And, and someone that, that is dumb enough to carry a gun is going to be treated extremely harsh. Well, you know, I, there's something to be said for that because I'm willing to bet that they don't have mass shootings there. They do, but it's quickly really? it's quickly made as an example. It's very quickly like it may happen like in the north somewhere, it may happen somewhere in one of the on, you know, one of the outlying provinces, but when it does happen, it, there's an example to be made. It's not this parade them in front of television to do a get well tour. No, it's it's handled very directly. And so it, it does deter people from thinking twice about don't do that. Uh, and that's, I think, how they treat crime in general. Now, they do have crime. Of course, they do have things that happen. What's interesting is they will. I noticed this when I was there the last time in 2014. I had my phone out while I was standing on the street. And it is very common for people on motor scooters to ride by and grab people's phones except if you're a foreigner. If you're a foreigner, they won't even come near you. Now, among themselves, you know, there is, there is, there's that potential of you, you know, being jacked by a fellow countryman. But in, in, in the foreign concept, no, they are treated extremely. If you do something to a foreigner that has some implication of ruining their image, you'll be treated far more harsher than the, if they do it to, among themselves. Well, it's interesting. How long, so you were there last in 2014? Yeah, I went there from 2012 and then 2013 and 14. I kind of made trips every six months there. And uh, tell us about the bike. <laughs> so that was one of the original reasons I went. And that actually was kind of the forerunner of the book was I really wanted to cycle Vietnam. And uh, so I had a chance to sign up with a cycle tour there. And I, I cycled throughout Ho Chi Minh City. And there's 13 districts that make up Ho Chi Minh City. And I got to cycle in all 13 of them along with going down towards the uh, Cambodian border and then up around the Mekong Delta as well. But that was one of the original reasons I went. And that really is why, you know, when you look at the book and you see the symbol, that's where kind of where Cycle Rider came from, right? The bike with the pen. So that actually right. started with, here I'm doing cycling, why not I write about it, right? So that kind of was the enclave of what became, you know, the Cycle Rider series. So as you're, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as you're riding around the countryside, mm -hmm. do you see a lot of snakes? Cobras? Yes. Oh no, really? Uh, and another place I can't go. So you do. Oh, well, yeah, you do. But it's like everything else, you don't stop and pet the lions at the zoo, right? You don't stick your hand in the cage and say, "Hey, you know, this is cool, Lion King." No, you you, you simply know how to avoid. Now, the good thing is that because a lot of the tour guides are from obviously from Vietnam and the men from the Delta, where a lot of the snakes are located. They know exactly how to handle them. They know exactly how to avoid. They know where to take tourists. Even when I, we rode my bike, I rode a bike all the way to the Cambodian border. We were doing that during non-opium season. So where the opium, kind of the opium harvest was going on and the smuggling was going on, the guy actually said, but hey, if you come during this time of December, don't worry, there's nobody on the road at the time. So I timed it to go when it was not opium smuggling season. So, um, but, but I've heard that other times of the, of the year, yeah, don't bother being on that road because it's very treacherous. But yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of local tour people will tell you, oh yeah, if you want to avoid cobras, we're not going to go on this waterfall tour. 
right? We're going to go over here instead. And, and so they're very, very conscious of us, you know, obviously wanting to feel safe when we're there. Yeah, because if I run into a cobra, I'm going to pee my pants. That, that's a fact. <laughs> yeah, no, no, they, they, they do very well on keeping you. And there was one time we were riding near the border and they said, I wanted to go all the way up and see the giant, you know, the giant temple in near Phnom Penh. And the guy goes, no, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, he wouldn't tell me why. He just says, no. So we went south instead. And, um, and then we came around and I kind of was bummed out that I didn't get to see, you know, the big thing. But he goes, well, there was because there was a protest going on and they didn't like Americans that day. And I said, thank you. So so he was very like not wanting to tell me. So I didn't like freak out. But he, we got 50 kilometers away and he's like, OK, here's why we didn't go. And I'm like, thank you. So I gave him an extra tip and thank him for that. So there still is a segment of the population that holds us responsible for what, what happened or is that why they were protesting? No, it was more about um, China has a big influence in Cambodia now. Uh, a lot of money going in there, a lot of, you know, industrial things. There, a lot of the casinos are being built in, in Cambodia. They're built by Chinese. So they were, they were kind of saying down to America, you know, that the regular, you know, weekly chant. But it was more about other countries influencing Cambodia. And so he said, you don't want to be anywhere near this. I'm like, thank you. Appreciate it. You're well, my you know, guy. <laughs> Southeast Asia has gone through with the Khmer Rouge and with some of the, that's how you say it, right? Mm-hmm. Khmer Rouge. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of the, 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 the death and mayhem, it's, it's amazing how yeah. resilient they must be as human beings to come back from all of that. Yes. Well, you know, one of the questions that was posed to me, and I did put this in the book, which was a true story, was I actually had a chance to meet a, a nice Vietnamese lady in a technology conference in Los Angeles once. And I asked her about her culture. I said, how old is Vietnam? And she looked at me and says, how old do you think Vietnam really is? And I thought, you know, I read the history books, 5,000 years. She goes, that's what the Chinese want you to believe. We've been around for 10,000 years. So when you think about a culture like us, it's been around 289 years or something like that. We're, we're a speckle of dirt compared to people that have been around for 10,000 years. So when you, when you realize they've been around that long and they've been through how many wars, how many famines, how many cyclones, how many typhoons, how many wars, and there's still a country, that's, that, that, that speaks volumes of not only what's within their DNA, but just knowing that when somebody decides to come on their shores, you know, they're all going to rally together. I'm really impressed that you went there and to do all that because that would scare me. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I like to think I'm a tough guy, but no, that that stuff wouldn't scare me. Um, it was so quite congratulations. a lot of thank you, but a lot of people that have been there. I mean, I, I mean, when, when President Clinton went there in 2000, he was the very first president to go after the Vietnam War. So he that was very commendable of him to do that. But it also opened up the door to say, if I can come here, everybody can come here. And I think that was really, uh, that spoke volumes of it. And that also also created the idea of trade and it created the idea of, well, what exactly is there? And I think one of the really fun things about Vietnam that many people don't realize is that, you know, Google, Cisco, a lot of American companies have offices there. They have technology centers. They have gone in and said, boy, there's a lot of software engineers here. There's a lot of 
potential here of artificial intelligence and development. And so they've created development centers throughout the country. So not only is it really embracing the, the next generation technology, but their their people are learning, they're studying, they're getting educated, they're 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 putting forth the efforts, and it's great to see to see a Google land and say, no, we're going to build something right here, we're going to build something in Da Nang, and and to see it be successful, I think that's very cool. You know, it it's, it strikes me that that we think that that we've been around for a long time and and stuff like that. Well, the the reality is, and it's like. Uh, um, <clears throat> If, if you now you've up been up and around the Hanoi area, right? Yes, yes. Now, for those of you who don't remember, we had something called a B fifty two in nineteen seventy one, nineteen seventy two, and we had something called carpet bombing, and yes. they went to North Vietnam and in by the truckload of of airplanes, and they dropped bombs all over the place. All that's gone now. Is is that yes. is that right? Have they recovered from from well, all have, of that destruction? They have, but it, but the other part of the story you're referring to is linebacker Operation Linebacker One and Linebacker Two, where they tried to build a bomb them into submission to get them to back to the peace table. And right. the other part of the story that a lot of people don't realize is that the Russians and Chinese and Cubans were manning many of the rockets and missiles that were shooting the B-52s down. So we lost a lot of planes during that time, and a lot of crew members were lost during that time by trying to bomb Hanoi and Haobong and all the other areas around Hanoi. But when you go there today and you walk around, you know, it's it's all now I've been recovered, but a lot of it wasn't damaged. It was strategic areas were damaged, but there was a lot of it was still a lot of the history is still there. But you know, you, they still have the museum. There's a, there's a War Remembrance Museum in, in Saigon or, or Ho Chi Minh City you can go visit. There's the Imperial Palace that you can go take a tour of. And you do see, you know, the Hanoi Hilton is still there in Hanoi where the prison the prisoner war camp was there. You still see that. And you have to go in with kind of an open mind. If you go in with an attitude of saying, oh, you guys really torched us, it's like, well, we invaded. We showed up, right? And, of course, you're going to defend your homeland. So if you take an open mind to any place you go, and realize you're not an American anymore, you're in somebody else's neighborhood, you, you know, be be respectful, be according. And so I did tour all those museums and I saw the planes in the museum and the helicopters and stuff that they had laying around and radios and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it was definitely a different time, but yeah, no, Hanoi is a, a beautiful city, a very, very well, well-developed city. Is our, um, you know, so many movies have been done about the Hanoi Hilton and 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 the prison camps in Vietnam. Are those true to life? I mean, were that were those facilities actually like that? Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and so, and, and, yeah. and, well, Senator, Senator John McCain was a prisoner of war there. Um, yeah. You know, when before he became before he, you know he was a naval officer as well, and his father was an admiral. Um, and uh, there was other famous stories about the Hanoi Hilton as well, and how long people were kept there, and you know the, the torturing and things like that as well. Yeah, no, it, it's a very sad part of the history for sure. Well, and, you know, I'm just glad that we are now on uh, speaking terms with them. Yes. And we've got, you know, Starbucks and we've got Cisco and we've got all these companies that are there working with them. And I think that's how it should be. We never should have, in my humble opinion, because I grew up in the 60s. You're much younger mm -hmm. than me. You, you probably don't know. <laughs> Not by much. Not, I'm 59 on Saturday, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> You were just, you were just a kid because I remember in 1967, 1968, mm -hmm. uh, we would watch the 
CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And, uh, yes, and he was, and they they showed Vietnam and and all of the things that were going on there. And then, of course, there was the war pro- protests here. And then all those kids that were being sent there, I can't imagine, 18, 19, 20-year-old drafted kids that were then expected to go into the uh, jungles of Vietnam to to fight. And that's, it, was, it was a bad time. It was a bad time for us. I'm Agreed. And I think that, to your point, should we not have been there, been there, you know, I think that what what came about the Pentagon Papers when that first got disclosed later on in life, when we had a chance to read that, and how McNamara and a lot of the politicians weren't exactly telling the full extent of the story, and they were telling it, they were trying to sell the narrative. We should be there. If we're not there, it's going to be Vietnam, then it's going to be Thailand, then it's going to be Singapore, and it, it was a it was a fallacy story that was sold back in the 40s when World War II ended and suddenly it's going to be the Great Cold War. This is just a subset of it. And it was a total disaster. It was not worth 3 million people on the Vietnamese side dying and 57,000 of our troops dying for the sake of what? You know, and, and, I, and I sadly say that because when you look at Afghanistan after 20 years and Iraq is now a failed state and Libya is a failed state, Syria is a failed state, it it's it all goes back to wait what exactly did we do to want to go in there to begin with? What did we see in there other than greed, greed, and more greed? And in Vietnam was like I mentioned about the resources. It all started with the Japanese and the Chinese and the French and then us and you know the Cameron Rouge and then everybody else went in saying, Hey, if we can just get in there and get all that rubber, we're gonna be fantastic. No, you're not. You're gonna pay a lifetime and you're gonna destroy a big part of the culture, the world culture. Around that, so no, I, I I didn't think we ever belonged there either. Yeah, they called that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they called that the the domino effect. Yes, uh, when right. they thought that North Viet- or North Korea uh, and uh, was a communist state, and then North Vietnam, and they were going to take it one bit by one bit, and then they're going to go right. to, uh, to the Philippines, and then yes. and then you know, I would have loved to see them try and take over. Uh, um, Australia or something like that. That wouldn't have gone well at all. <laughs> no, no. But but I do think that, you know, when you think about the time, because you you're, you're and I are almost contemporaries, you know, you had the, the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King going on at the same time. You had protests of Vietnam going on. You had no trust in government. You had decisions being made that were based on a fraction of the truth, not the full truth. And we haven't changed. We're still in that same boat, you know, 45, 50 years later that we're still making decisions to go into Iraq when we should never even been there. I had the chance of actually meeting, not directly Colin Powell once after the Iraq war. I was actually working for a tech company. He was a keynote. And one of the employees got up and grabbed the microphone and says, General, I have to ask you a question. Did we have enough troops? And he came out and goes, so if, God, if Colin Powell at his level, after the Iraq invasion in 03, come out and said, we did not have enough, can you imagine everybody below him and what they thought of the whole party? And that was, what, 20 years after Vietnam? So t- to still have that uh, my, mindset that we can show up and own the world and own the party, it's like, move on, you know, and, and it just it doesn't work like that anymore. People are willing to sacrifice everything it for not to be controlled by a foreign power and vietnam taught us that and we didn't we never learned our lesson from that when we still haven't i'm i'm afraid <clears throat> i'm hopeful that we are going to be done with that kind of thing because you know wars change now 
Uh, you, they it's, have- it's, it's, it's it's different. It's and uh, but enough of that. Let's let's no, no, talk no, about. That's a fair, no, no, that's a fair question. It's a fair comment because last time you and I had a wonderful dialogue about artificial intelligence, and yes. that was before Chat GDP came out. And you and I were were talking before the big announcement of OpenAI and how that was coming out, and Microsoft was going to drop a bunch of money in. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember it well. And so what was interesting about our last dialogue that I thought was important was cybersecurity is about warfare. We have already been at war with China and Russia and everybody else for years. It's just not the battle that you think. It's the battle of stealing data, identity, credit cards, people's mortgages. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different other warfare that's been going on for, for many, many years. And I still write about it every day in my blogs is that's really the next generation warfare. We just haven't come to grips with we really are at war with China and, and they're at war with us, but we can still go over there and vacation in Beijing and hang out. But we're still technically at war with them, at least from a cybersecurity side. Exactly. I got to ask you, because of, because of your experience in cybersecurity, what the hell is up with the balloons? So I think what's funny about the balloon is I, I haven't wrote it yet. I was actually thinking of putting it into a blog for one of my clients. But the idea of the balloon is no different than what cybersecurity experts and CISAR people face every day. They face 100 balloons every day. Every day, somebody's trying to get in to steal information. They're trying to get database. I mean, the last hack a couple of weeks ago was somebody jacked into a company that does background checks. What a great (laughs) harvest of data, right? So when you see the fact that that's going on, the balloon to me was kind of more symbolic of they've already been doing that already. It just hasn't been a balloon. It's been, you know, through people's emails or, you know, impersonating you know people like you and I and getting into our emails and finding all this troubling information. But the balloons were just, I think, a symbol of we're going to try this. We're going to see how you know how weak you guys really are. And I was blown away that they let the whole thing go all the way to South Carolina, whatever it was, and they finally shot it down. It's like if if we sent a balloon that way, it would have been shot down fifty miles before it even got to the border. So I I don't know what that was all about, to be honest with you. But we've been but cybersecurity people face balloons every single day for sure. You know it's it's so interesting because when we were talking about you know the political divide in this country is like you know those those damn Democrats they let the thing go all the way across the country. And then, and then we find out that, well, you know, we hadn't been looking for that before. And now yeah. they, they, they've got signatures going back into the Trump administration that said that they were doing the same things there. We just didn't know that they were doing that then. Right. Um, so it's, it is remarkable when you get into the, the type of work that you do, how pervasive it is and how widespread it is and how it's a daily battle every day. When's that book coming out, by the way? Well, so I get asked often from people, when is the, you know, what is called threat modeling team sport? Uh, I have been working on that. It's, it's really about sums and stories of cyber war. Um, one of the opening chapters I wrote is I said, did you get that, that email from Nigeria that you won a million dollars? And half the people in my focus group raised their hand and said, yeah, by the way, I did. I said, well, don't worry, you didn't win. <laughs> so, but, but that is, that is cyber warfare. And uh, you know, long lost relative you haven't seen since you were four that said you just inherited a bunch of money, but he needs your bank account information to send you the money. Mm-hmm. You know, so I do have that real book coming out in 2024. That's going to be a John Gormley, which is my real name. My real my real name in real life is John Gormley, actually. That's the book will come under my real name where Patrick Green will be my fictional work. You know, I interviewed a gal oh, several months ago now that um, 
was taken with a guy that was via email they met in a chat room and they got to know each other and talk to each other and he was a doctor from england and he was working overseas because he just felt the call to do that and that he was a really good guy and but he didn't his when he was he was like in nigeria or someplace and he said my bank account got locked up and so i can't get home and my wife is ill in england and i need to go mm -hmm. see her and my kids and stuff can you help mm -hmm. she ended up helping him to the tune of 1.2 million dollars over time and then he stopped communicating with her and then she heard from a guy in ethiopia who was that guy and he they're trained to do this thing where they can get into people's hearts and into yes. their bank account and they're not who they pretend to be at all yes is yeah, that we just hit that it is because just the other day was valentine's day and a lot of what they call romantic scams come out at valentine's day or lonely and they someone's paying attention to them or someone's responding to them but those those campaigns, those attack campaigns start months before. They start with a very simple, hey, that's really a cute picture of you on Facebook. Or, hey, you know what, I didn't, congratulations on your promotion on LinkedIn. So it starts very subtly, and then it kind of builds up. Oh, I noticed you're single. Oh, oh you're living in Kansas. Oh, yeah, no, I went to the University of Kansas, you know. And so when you start seeing that, it takes it's a buildup to where they eventually get to your point. They get to that score. And part of when you're doing cybersecurity awareness training is to really teach employees and students and others to say, look, when you see somebody who comes out of nowhere that wants to have their relationship or just want to say hi to you, think twice. Because unless unless they, you know, you don't know this person, you have no idea where they're coming from, they're catfishing you from somewhere, hit delete, mark, mark a spam and move on. Don't worry, you'll find somebody that'll love you someday. Don't worry, there's plenty of people out there, but not through, not through the airwaves of the internet. And I think as more people are getting burned and there's no recovery from that, you can't, can't go to the FBI and say, hey, I just gave somebody a million dollars. They're like, so what do you want us to do about it? There's there's no recovery from that. No, there isn't. I, I, I had to laugh on Facebook occasionally because I don't know if I'm a public figure, but I'm out there a little bit. <laughs> and occasionally I'll get a friend request from a uh, person who claims to be a young lady. And mm -hmm. I don't know them. I've never met them. So I generally will go on there. Their, fa their Facebook page and look at their friends and all of them were old people like me, old men yes. like me, because what they're trying to do is to get you involved in a relationship with them so that then they can take your money. Correct. And then if you look on LinkedIn, I get a lot of requests from people that claim that they're like a managing director of Estee Lauder or they're a global purchasing agent for Macy's. And I'm like, yeah, but why are you living in Topeka, Kansas? You know, and so you, you sort of, if you play it out for five minutes, you do the five minute rule, never respond to anything within five minutes, do the five minute rule, process what's going on. And there's a reason why there's an ignore button there in LinkedIn, hit the ignore button and move on. Because, you know, that's really where the identity and sort of the impersonational attacks really are starting to come. Yeah, you know, I really got creeped out because uh, this, this one gorgeous picture she was half dressed at the time, but it was a gorgeous picture of her. And I got to thinking, what if this is a 300 pound man sitting on a bed? <laughs> <laughs> sitting in a jail in Syria. 
yeah, and he's he's claiming to be this beautiful girl, and I'm talking no. to him like he's a beautiful young lady. I was like, no, then, no, thank you. I don't need Click, to do that. Delete, delete, delete. Of course, <laughs> exactly. And is there so much of this stuff that that you know? I I pay. Uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, a couple hundred bucks a year for like Norton to protect my uh, security and stuff. Do those things yeah. work? Yes, they do. And 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 what they're doing is so Norton acquired a company to do that, which was LifeLock. LifeLock, you oh. basically put in your social security number, your your driver's license number, your bank account information, credit card, and I actually added my wife as well. So my wife and I share a family account, and I said this is phenomenal because they need that information to open credit now. If the creditor, however, allows an account to be open, even with you having LifeLock, then LifeLock not only will protect you, but the creditor is going to have to eat it. So if somebody mistakenly opens a name under my name and says, oh, I now have a credit card under his name, I said, well, how did you exactly did you open it? Well, we went to some really small regional local bank and found a way to get a credit card. Well, guess what? That wasn't me, number one. Number two is I'm protected by LifeLock. So got, you know, good luck. And number three, the credit card company is going to have to eat it because they did not have enough safety controls in order to prevent something like that from happening. But yeah, no, I definitely encourage people using programs like that. Why is it that we are sometimes so, I hate the word stupid, maybe uninformed. Because <laughs> the reason I say that is one time, you know, I was getting a tax return. And it didn't come, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. So I finally called and and uh, got a hold of somebody, finally. And they said, oh, no, that was sent a month and a half ago. And I said, well, I didn't get it. And they said, well, you've got a canceled check here. And, uh, oh, so so then I get this call from um, Chehalis, Washington, which is a small town 100 miles mm-hmm. south of Seattle. Older guy gets on and says, how come you said, how come you sucked the feds on me? Because you came into my store with mm-hmm. the government check. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I said, that's all. And you said, that's all you had. And so I took pity on you and cast your cashed your check. That wasn't mm-hmm. even. And I said, didn't you get ID? He said, he said his wallet was stolen. He didn't have any ID. It's like, Oh man. And he was a store owner. It was like, oh come on, please, really? And it was it was, you know, three, four hundred bucks uh that, that he ended up having to eat because yes. he fraudulently he cashed a check that he should never have cashed. Yes. And banks are starting to be that way when it comes to loans. They're starting to be that way with home mortgage, with take people trying to get a mortgage. When people are trying to transfer trust deeds, they they don't take this, oh. I can just call Steve and Steve will pick up the phone. Steve better drag his little tail into the bank and be Steve. And now they're checking multiple IDs, not just the passport, but now they're checking the driver's license. Now there's third-party services that validate your passport. And the reason why is because ultimately the financial institutions end up eating a lot of that for not having the right controls in place. And you're right. A lot of it is a little bit of us because we're just being ignorant, but it does come back to the financial institutions having to be regulated more. And also more importantly, they have to have the controls and spend the money on these controls. And you'd be shocked on some of them don't. Some claim, oh, you know what? We just can't afford it. It's on our budget. Doesn't matter. You're still going to be responsible if something goes wrong. So yeah, that guy, he's, he deserves to eat the 300 bucks if he didn't require a driver's license to cash a check. 
Yeah, because the guy wasn't me, so he didn't he didn't have the stuff. Why is it that uh, businesses still allow somebody to make a purchase online without having um, necessary backup information? Because that that's happened to me as well, where I I get this notification that somebody in New Jersey just spent four hundred dollars at this particular store, and and the reason they flagged it is because they know that I've never been to New Jersey. Um, but but why do businesses because they ended up having to eat that? Why they do, do they do that? They do, and well, a lot of it comes back to the hackers are going to go try to find not an Amazon, not a Fidelity, not a Bank of America, or any of the really hardcore online systems. They're going to try to find a very simple startup online retailer that maybe is a buyer that has like you know eBay or something like that, and they'll target that one because they probably won't require the three digit code, the four digit pin, you know, the, the, what is your you know home address? What is your zip code and things like that? They may just get by with just simply the number and the name and the expiration date, which, you know, easily could be stolen. So that's why it's really goes back to the retailers being responsible for forcing these types of controls of happening. And, um, and I think that that's why when you do shop online, you, you shop online in places that do have requirements of asking you, What's your address? What is this? What's the three-digit code? What's the four-digit code? Right? What's your zip code? Because ultimately, they don't want to. They don't want to be responsible for it. And when people say, "Oh, I'm going to buy this from an overseas e-commerce site," don't do it. <laughs> I don't care if you're going to get for ninety percent off. Don't do it. It's probably counterfeit. <laughs> but don't do it either. No. You know, my my son thought he had some extra electronic equipment, uh, game gaming equipment and stuff. And he said, well, you know, I'll just put it on eBay. That'll, that'll work. I'll just put it on eBay. And, and so he sold something. He sold a controller. And the controller, he boxed it up and said it, and it was in good shape. When the person got it, they said it was broken. And yeah. so, so he said, no, it wasn't. It was in perfect shape. What they had done is they had a broken controller. They went in the online and they found somebody to sell them the good controller. Then they got the good controller, put the bad controller in the box and said, this was broken when we got it. I want a refund. What can you do about that? Nothing. It, it, there's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk. And, and sadly, eBay used to be a lot of fun. eBay still is a very good site for people that want to have a little side business. I, I'm a fan of eBay. I'm a fan of Amazon as well. But yes, there is a lot of, and, and Macri is another site that's out there as well that does this. People put products online all the time on different e-commerces. They're, they're, some people make a good living doing it. But if you're going to put an expensive bag out there, like a Chanel bag or something, and try to get 10 grand for it, and someone says, oh, it came with a scratch, Chances are, unless you find the little serial number that's attached to the bag, you know you're, you're going to be out ten grand. So, yeah, it's it, the reality is that if it can be exploited, hackers are going to find a way to exploit it. Why people are awfully inventive, aren't they? Yes, they are. There's money to be made, <laughs> and money is the do all and be all of everything. Absolutely, um, it, integrity be damned. You know, as it's it really is it really is a shame. It gets to the point where I, you know, I deal with Amazon directly, but I won't mm -hmm. deal with anybody else. You know, this, this weird thing happened to me just the other day. I, I I want I want to bring this up because it's it's I think it's important for people to understand. Um, my TV broke, and so I bought another TV and I got a decent deal from a company, but it was online and they were going to ship it mm -hmm. to me, and um, and they use a they use 
um, private contractors as rather than employees, they use private contractors as delivery drivers. You know where I'm going with this. Absolutely. <laughs> and so there were two, it was supposed to be delivered on a particular day. It wasn't. I, I looked online and it said delayed and the next mm -hmm. day it was delayed. And so I got in the habit of looking for this because I was wanting my TV because I had none. And, um, right. and so I go online and it said delivered. <laughs> so I go, great, it's here. So I go out front. It's not, it's not there. It was yeah. an $850 TV. It's not there. So I go looking around the block. It's not there. It's not anywhere. And so I call the uh, the, the shipper and say, mm -hmm. I know that you said that it just showed up or it showed up a half hour ago or 45 minutes. It's not here. They said, well, let's call mm -hmm. the driver. So they call the driver and uh, and they said, we'll get back to you. 15 minutes later, the driver pulled up <laughs> in his van with my TV because he got oh. caught. On, because there's the, the the fact is, if somebody drops something at your door, and with COVID, it happens all the time. If somebody drops right. something at your door, and it's not there when you go for it, you have no recourse. No. Unless, unless well, the good thing is that there's there's a because it's happened, there is a recourse now. Thankfully, you go back to the original place that you purchased it, and they made the decision to use a third party in order to deliver your good. They actually would be the one responsible. Plus, if you call your credit card company and say, here's what happened, nine to 10 times they're going to reverse the charge, particularly if the major retailer decided to use a third party that they chose to use that didn't deliver your property, you can easily get your credit card to reverse it, especially if it never even showed up at your door. And then, then I had another one. I got a million of them. Because of COVID and because I live alone here, uh, I, I have my groceries delivered. I just assume mm -hmm. not go to the grocery store and the mask mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So I get this I get this notification from um, from Amazon that the groceries have been delivered. I go great. Go to the front. Nothing there. And so I, I, I <laughs> not a thing. So I called Amazon and got their customer service department and uh, and they said, well, you know, uh, let's call the driver and find out where it is or what happened. Mm -hmm. So they called the driver and uh, the driver said, well, a lady came to the door and picked it up. And I said, well, that's pretty inconvenient. Can you tell me what she looks like? And she said, well, no, we don't have a picture. And I said, well, if she's cute, I'll take her. But she doesn't live here. I have no idea. So he had gone to the, this is what is insidious. He'd gone to the wrong house. And these are groceries, by the way. Right. So she doesn't know what she's getting. But perishable. She, this perishable stuff. Person came out of the house and said, oh, these are mine. And because she came out and got them directly, he didn't take a picture. So we have no idea where they ended up, um, but but to be but Amazon was very gracious yeah. and they redelivered the product within five hours. So yeah, so yeah, but but I can't. But the cost of doing business must be enormous. Well, but it's it's gathering. That was a time in which people did not want to go. Now that COVID is sort of on a, on the on the reverse. You know, people are getting out, they're shopping again, they're going to malls, they're going to movies again, to some degree. But yeah, I, th I still think that they are, uh, they're seeing the lower of the times right now. They're not seeing the volumes they saw, they saw before. Which, which is which is good, because that means that I, I ordered groceries this morning and I got them this afternoon. So. 
<laughs> You'll get them for sure. I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy about that. By the way, we are talking with Patrick Greenwood. He's the author of Sunrise in Saigon. I really encourage you to get that book and also go to his website because he also does coffee and he'll, yes. he'll get you some coffee and he, the, all the proceeds go to helping kids in Vietnam get a bicycle helmet so they don't get killed by that cart that's that's in front of them. That's correct. So I really that's appreciate what you're doing. That, that, that's Thank really you. awesome. Thank uh, you, Kevin. That, very much. I, and I really enjoy having you on, and uh, and um, we we had a friend of yours come on the show, and we're going to have her on again. Uh, I can't pronounce her name very Para, but is Parasu. Parasu. Yes, and uh, she is. And uh, if you would like to shout out for her book, that would be good too. Because uh, oh yeah, no, she she wrote an amazing book about her journey um, from Afghanistan. You know, trying uh, called identity. You know, and when she wrote her book, it was about her journey uh, of a young girl leaving Afghanistan. During, this is during when the Russians invaded. This wasn't our time. It was 20 years before that. So when she, you know, when she did her story about journey from Afghanistan, a quest of identity, it really was about her journey of going into Europe. And then from there, she eventually settled in Canada. But the storyline that really made Paris an amazing writer was that the fact that she took so many jobs. She was what, a retailer, a seamstress, a dentist hygienist. I mean, she worked in a kitchen. She did everything possible. And it was just an amazing story of not only her, but how she met her husband and her, and her children as well. And now she's settled in, the, in Canada. But it, it, she's a wonderful friend. I, I love her book. She's, she's written very, very well. Um, I'm encouraging her to write more because I thought her book was an incredible, wonderful memoir as well. But yeah, I'm glad that she came on your show as well. You know, I got to tell you, uh, Patrick, we are so lucky living in the United States when the story of how she grew up in uh, Afghanistan with especially with the Taliban and with the Sharia law and all of that, all of that stuff. And that she she survived it and, and her brothers and sisters also made it out and and that kind of stuff. It's but it takes a lot of guts to be able to do that. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. And, and I'm glad that people like her and you are bringing it to light. You make me almost want to go to Vietnam now. Well, I wish you would. I think you would have a ball. I think you would just, you would see the same. I think you would come back with a much different perspective of like everybody else. You have to see it. You got to feel it. You got to smell it. And you got to go, wow, this is exactly what I didn't think it was going to be. And thankfully for that, because now I have my own perspective. But no, Kevin, you're you're a great host. You run a great podcast. You're, thank you for getting writers like myself on your show. Um, you've got a great audience of people and you're, you're just a wonderful host. And thank you for helping us get some visibility to our work as well. Well, you are you are so welcome. Will you come back and visit me again? Absolutely. I, I when the second book comes out, when when Codename Dragon Ball comes out, I'd love to get on your show and talk about that book as well. Absolutely. Even the even the audio book, I would love to have you back to talk about that as well. Love, love uh, to be on again. Yeah. So and before we go, is there anything that you would like to tell our audience, those that are listening now and those that will be tuning in in the future? Absolutely. So if you want to check out the book, go to my website, uh, sunriseinsaigonnovel.net. I have my movie trailer up there as well. So you can be able to see a nice little one minute clip of what potentially could be a movie. Um, the book is available on amazon.com. It's done very well. It is on Barnes and Noble. It's on Walmart.com as well. And it's on Goodreads. So if you're familiar with Goodreads, please leave a nice review as well. But Coffee Site is uh, Psycho Writer, the number three, Expresso.com. 
as, as Kevin mentioned, all proceeds of the book and the coffee goes to Helmets for Kids in Vietnam. Very nice. And I want to thank you again for being here. I was just, yes, while you while we, we were talking, I was just struck by, uh, do you remember um, Robin Williams with, Good morning, Vietnam! You remember that? Yes. When, when near the end of the movie, he said, This isn't going to look good on a resume. I miss him. Well, I do. But you know what's funny? You know the real underlining story to that was that actually was Pat Sajak in real life. Really? Did you not know that? Yes. I did not know so, that. So Pat Sajak, way before Wheel of Fortune, Pat Sajak was, in fact, a DJ in Vietnam during the war. And he's the one that dubbed. Now, he wasn't the same Robin Williams type character from what I was told the story of. But the story I was told was Pat Sajak actually was a DJ in Vietnam that said, good morning, Vietnam. But he didn't do it the same with the same, obviously, bravado. But that actually was Pat Sajak was the original Good Morning Vietnam. Now that's good to know. Now, there, now ladies and gentlemen, that becomes a trivia question. Uh, you yes, can, you can win. You can win some <laughs> money with that if you use that. So now you know it is a true story that Pat Sajak was. That was a a, a kind of a loose depiction of uh, of him um, when Robin Williams did Good Morning Vietnam and was up through the Academy Awards for that. But a lot of people don't realize that. Before that, it really he really was uh, imitating art, imitating life as Pat Sajak was that DJ. That is that is that is remarkable. That I've learned I've learned well I've learned a ton today, but I've learned something else that that is that I'll use that in the future. I will tell you. So that would be a good for your question for sure. <laughs> exactly, Patrick Greenwood has been our guest, and uh, go to his website, which again is www sunriseinsaigonnovel.net and for coffee it is www.psychowriter the number three espresso.com and the coffee is really good yes so. this is this is kevin's bag he just doesn't know it yet but it's on its way so thank you again <laughs> and everyone check out, check out the book as well it's available on amazon.com as well it is a beautiful cover on that thing, by the way. So, so when you read the book, you and I are going to get on together. I want you to read the book, enjoy it, write a nice review for me if you can, but remember this picture. And then after you finish the book, I'm going to ask you a question. What was so important about the cover? How was the cover uh. important to the story? So when you read the book and you look at the cover, after you finish the story, you'll go, oh. so you're going to have that ah moment for sure. But yes, after you read the book and you say, I still don't get the cover. Trust me, you'll get the cover. Cover has a very, yes. very important meaning to the book. You know, you know what that means is I and you're you've done podcasts, you're a podcaster. You can't I can't yes. bullshit you and say, Oh, read the book, <laughs> it's great, and everything. Because now you're gonna ask me a question about it. So I so. will say, okay, okay, what's important about the cover then, huh? And <laughs> I don't know pretty quickly if you read it or not. Exactly. That's a great way to finding out. So, Absolutely. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for being here. It's it's great to have you and I and uh and we'll we'll be in touch again very soon. Again, Thank Patrick you. Greenwood, author, Sunrise in Saigon. Get the book, buy the coffee, help somebody other than yourself. Okay. So, <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It's a wonderful day. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. If you wait right there, I'll be right back, sir. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. 
I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because 